Take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. We've been in an Advent sermon series, and I know that Christmas has, Day has come and gone this year, but there's one more sermon to close out the year that I would like to preach on this same topic in a, in a different aspect. Today's sermon is entitled, Sure Revelation of the Word. 2 Peter 1 Verses 16 through 21. As we close out the year and look forward to 2014, I want us to consider where our hearts are in regard to the Word of God. The past two Sundays, we've spent looking at the wonderful account of the act of the incarnation of the Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Last Monday... We celebrated together the supremacy of Christ from Colossians chapter 1. As we look forward in anticipation to the Christmas morning celebration. And truly the only reason for celebration on a day like Christmas. Or 364 other days of the year. The only reason for real celebration is that Christ is supreme. That He is above all. That it is through Him that all things exist It is through Him that all things hold together, and it is by Him that all things will come to a full completion at the end of time, according to the purpose of God the Father. That's a reason to celebrate. We talked about that last Monday. Today, I want our hearts to be caught up in the majesty of God's Word. His majesty, His glory are revealed through His inspired Word. Let that soak in for a moment. Think about how you treat God's Word on a daily basis. I'm going to say that sentence again, and I want you to really think, is this when I really live my life as if this statement is true? That God's majesty, that Christ's majesty and His glory are revealed to us. They're given to us. They're made plain to us. We can see them through His inspired Word. Now, often people will say something like this. Well, preacher, if I could just see Jesus, then my faith would be solidified. If I could just see Jesus with my eyes, I, would, I, I mean, I wouldn't be like the disciples. I wouldn't waver. I wouldn't be like the Pharisees. I couldn't be in Jesus' presence and deny that He's God in the flesh. If I could only see Jesus, if I mean, I'm not even asking, preacher, that he come like physically stand where I could touch him. If he would just come to me in a dream, if he would just come to me in a vision, in my, and, and I was awake in my room, and, and he filled my room with glory, and I could see him, then I would never doubt again. I'm reminded when I hear that, just so in case you ever think to say that to me, I'm reminded of our Lord's words in Luke. Lazarus laid outside the rich man's gate all of his life, his adult life, and he was starving, and he ate crumbs and scraps and refuse. And the rich man partied with his friends. Lazarus was a faithful man. Matter of fact, Jesus was telling a story about a man that was named after one of the greatest men of the Old Testament's servant, Abraham's servant, Eleazar. The name Eleazar in Hebrew is translated over into the Greek as Lazarus. So Lazarus, 
the Hebrew people would have said, oh, okay, like Abraham's servant is a poor man living outside a gate begging for scraps of bread. And then they died. This poor man begging for bread and the rich man on the same day passed away. They went into the presence of God. The rich man was gathered, the Bible says, into the bosom of Abraham. It's a way of talking about the existence with Christ prior to the resurrection. And he's there with Jesus, with God, looking out over the abyss that separated him from the suffering that's going on in the place of holding, waiting on the resurrection so they can suffer for all of eternity. And in that abyss, he sees the rich man. And the rich man sees him. And what does he say? First of all, he says, Jesus said, he asked for one drop of water on his tongue. Right? It's always struck me. Why didn't he say, I repent. I believe. Can I get out? He never repented. He never expressed belief. Because it's impossible for unregenerate people to confess faith in Christ. If you ever doubted the need of the Holy Spirit to regenerate, make the Spirit alive for you to have faith, if you ever doubted that, Luke is your text. A man in hell burning, suffering, knowing that he will die forever and ever in the outside the presence of God, didn't even ask for regeneration. He didn't even ask for faith. He didn't even ask to get out. Spurgeon to this text said, Therefore, hell needs no gate, for no man dares to leave. That's the first thing I see. And the second thing is just as telling. Because while in hell... In the holding place, the rich man looks up and says a second request. You remember? Lord, send Lazarus back from the dead to my brothers so that they won't join me in this cursed place. You remember that request? Do you remember what Jesus said about that request? They have Moses... And the prophets. If they will not hear them. Then even if a man were raised from the dead. They would not believe. When you say to me. If I could just see Jesus. I'd never doubt again. I say to you. You doubt right now. And you have the word of God. What more can He give you than His sacred, inspired, perfect, holy, unblemished Word that never fails, that has been proven time and time and time again. It has been beaten against by every critic, by every doubter, by every sinner, and by every believer. It has been tested and beaten and tried to be disproven and it has stood the test of time. It's the most read book in all of the world. It's the most purchased book in all of the world. More free copies of this book are given out than any book in print in any language. It's the book printed and existing in more languages today than any book has ever existed. This is the Word of God. 
So when you say to me, well, if I could just see Jesus, I stop and say, if a man were raised from the dead, you wouldn't believe any more than you believe by reading the Word of God. We have a sure revelation has been given to us in the Word. So while we rightly celebrate Christ coming, the Word of God coming in the flesh, we should also rightly celebrate the giving of God's Word in inspired text. Today, I want our visions to solidify themselves onto the Word of God for the coming year and the years that will come after, Lord willing. It's not my desire to get into a discussion today about visions or dreams or continuationism or cessationism or any of those things. As interesting as those things are, as much as I will talk to you about that anytime, and we can have a long cup of coffee over that, that's not the purpose today. What I want to follow is the point of Peter in 2 Peter 1, 16-21 as he elevates for us the inspired word above any and all experiential theology. Experiential theology is necessary. You live a life of faith. You experience a life of faith. You experience God's goodness and mercy. You experience His righteousness and His justice in this life of faith. Experiential theology is vital. It is necessary. It is unavoidable. Sometimes I think us conservatives like to be deadheads and deny all of that. But the truth is, if you've never experienced the love of God, if you've never had a moment where it all snapped into vision so that you could see clearly the love and mercy and grace of God, then I don't know how you're a believer. But experiential theology sits at the feet of revealed, perfect, inspired revelation. It is the servant of this inspired text. In other words, when you experience something, you don't know if it's true or untrue unless you take that experience back to something. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to some popular teacher of the day and find out if he thinks your experience is real or not? Good luck. You're going to come to my office? Good luck. I don't even test my own experience by my own knowledge. But all experiential theology sits like a servant at the feet of the inspired Word of God. If it's not there, and if we can't test it by that, we're left unhinged. We have no hope of ever knowing how God speaks. So Peter, and that's where I want to go, elevates the majesty and the glory of God through the majesty and the glory of the Bible itself. And so I'll return to the question I asked earlier How do you treat this word? Do you treat it like that? Like it is the word of God to you, to me? Let's put our passage in context. Our passage is 2 Peter 1, 16-21. When I get done, you will think I thought it was about the whole chapter. But that's necessary because, as you know, I'm usually verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph. And so I don't know how to do anything else. Peter, right second Peter, to the church, hit the people he wrote first Peter to that are dispersed under persecution throughout Pontius Pilate, Galatia, I mean Pontius, Galatius, Galatia, and all of the area surrounding 
in the Middle East and in Asia Minor. He writes this as an old man, probably 30 years post-Christ resurrection. He's nearing the end. He's coming near to the end of his life. He's an older man. He suffered greatly. He suffered at the hand of the Jews. We read in Acts 3 and Acts 4 and Acts 5 that it's Peter who takes the brunt of the persecution that the church initially experiences under the hand of the Sanhedrin. He and John are the ones that are beaten. He and John are the ones that are put into prison. He and John are the ones who are sentenced to die. And yet God delivers them. You remember, it's, it's Peter that goes and knocks on the door and they say, you know, you can imagine the servant opens the door and shuts it and runs back in and says, I saw a vision of Peter. They all thought he was dead. And then I can imagine, you know, the burly one that Peter was, he knocks again. They come back and say, don't shut the door. It's not a vision. It's me. God got me out of prison. He had been delivered by the hand of God. He had suffered under persecution. He had delivered God's word to God's people at Pentecost. And he had been a building block on which the church was built. And he had written scripture, the first letter that we get. He had given Luke and Mark their accounts of the gospel. I mean, Peter is an essential character at the beginning of church history. He's now in prison as an old man in Rome. The fact is, Peter's only a little short space from writing this letter from hanging upside down on a cross. That's the context. Think of 2 Peter as the last will and testament of a man that had loved and served and followed Jesus Christ all of his adult years. Not perfectly, not without fault and failure, but he had followed He had been commissioned and he had kept the commission. And now he's ready to die. And he's got one last letter to write. He wants to tell the church one more thing. Now think about that this morning. If you were new, I'm dying. I'm terminal. It's over. It's all done. It's completed. I got one last shot. I'm going to write one thing to the people that I love the most in all the world. That's 2 Peter. What's the purpose of the letter? Well, chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. Look at it with me. Therefore, I intend... This is my purpose. Always to remind you of these qualities. We're going to talk about those in just a minute. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body, this is this discussion like a tent. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians, doesn't he? That the tent wears old, the outer exterior man is dying, but the new man's being renewed every day. Peter's talking the same way. I'm, my body's about to be gone. It's about to lay down. It's about to expire. I know the end of my life is here. It's soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, He knows it's the end of his life. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. The purpose of the book is to establish the faith of the believers in that day and in our day in one one unmistakable entity, Jesus Christ. Our faith will be established in Christ. But how will it be established, Peter? I'm going to give you the answer. Peter could write one more time. He could have wrote about thousands of stories of walking with Jesus. 
And what he wrote was this. Your faith is established. You will grow. You will know Christ in this word. How do you treat the word of God? As the most precious and valuable of all possessions? Or as a decoration for your back glass in your car until next Sunday? How do you think Peter would respond to Christians? Old man Peter in the Roman prison, ready to die on a cross. How do you think he would respond to Christians who say, I just don't get into reading the Bible. It just just doesn't mean a lot to me. I can tell you. I can tell you with full authority. Look back at the beginning of this chapter, verse 3. Look what he says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Peter would say, this is not a dashboard decoration. These are very great and precious promises given to us by God. And all the power of God that's necessary for life and good works is bound up in this Word. So if you told him, the Bible bores me, man. I'm just not into reading that much. Peter would tell you, then you're not into Jesus. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just telling you what he said. This is a precious, powerful message from the one and only God. And you don't have any interest in it? That's what Peter would say. He would say, man, Jesus Christ, Peter would say, man, Jesus Christ died for the truths of that book to make them real and true and fulfilled. And furthermore, He was raised from the dead and now is sitting at the right hand of the Father on high, commending His gifts to the whole church all by the word of the promise of His Father. It wouldn't have happened if it weren't for this word. That's what Peter would say. And you throw it on the dash, you forget about it for weeks at a time. The purpose of the letter is plain. The purpose of the text of Scripture is plain. It reveals to us the power of God by granting to us all the knowledge that we need of the precious and very great promises. And it's through them that we've become partakers of the divine nature. The Spirit has come to dwell in us, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. If I were preaching this entire chapter, which I'm not, I would say verses 1 through 4 are precious promises. Verses 5 through 11 are purposeful perseverance. Purposeful perseverance. In other words, God has saved you. He has by His power made you His. What's your response, church? Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort don't be a couch potato. Don't lay aside as if, well, I don't have to do anything. God does it all. No, God's work means that you make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge 
with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know that you are in Christ, look at this list and say, are these things increasing in me? By the grace of God and the effort that I make to be in the grace of God every day, on a daily basis, am I increasing in this list? If not, He's not in me. That has to be my assumption. The only way not to fall backwards into sin is to move forward in virtue and knowledge, in self-control, in the application and the understanding of this Word, which leads itself to love, as Miriam so eloquently put, the world will know you by your love. Ultimately, we look at our lives and measure them according to the measuring rod of the Bible and say, is the Spirit in me or not? Test yourselves and know whether you be in the faith. Don't ever assume, I made a decision a long time ago, so I'm in. No, every day test your life by this book. That's what Peter, that's what Paul, that's what Jesus says. And if it's not according to the measuring rod, then repent. Repent. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Call to me, and I will answer you, and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Absolutely. Absolutely. His word tells us that which we cannot know any other way. We're waiting for a new word. We're waiting for some new revelation. We're waiting on God to say something else. And God says, I've said it all. And it's right here. Now, this goes exactly in line. Chuck's exactly right. Where we're headed is, this word was inspired by God. It was written down under God's guidance and leadership. And it will be applied and exposited and understood through the Spirit of God. No man has private understanding of the Bible. But God tells him what it says. 1 Corinthians said you can't discern spiritual things with a human understanding. But you need spiritual knowledge. This comes from the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Chuck. This is exactly right. This is what we're looking at this morning. We will look at verses 12 through 15 as persistent establishment. In other words, Jesus gave Peter a task. Now I want to make this plain. Jesus gave Peter a task. And that task was given him at the end of his, I mean, at the, at the worst moment of his life. I, I had to think this is the worst moment of his life. In Luke 22, um, verse 31, beginning in verse 31, in the upper room, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Look at this. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
What does he say in verses 12 through 15? My one desire at the end of my life is to help you remember and know what I've already taught you and what you've already been taught. He's strengthening and establishing his brothers, exactly what Jesus gave him to do. And, and furthermore, in verses 12 to 15, you say, how does Peter know that he's going to die? How does he know that his time has come? John 21, verse 15. Jesus reestablishes Peter into the fold. He's denied Christ three times. Christ died, was raised. Peter hears about his resurrection. Peter's got serious problems, right? I've denied Jesus. Now what? Jesus receives him back and commissions him to feed the sheep and take care of the flock. But look at the end of the the teaching. He says, Jesus does, in verse 17, the last part of the verse, feed my sheep. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, John editing says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter knew his time was drawing to an end because he was in a Roman prison. And I believe the Spirit had testified to him, this is the time, Peter, when God will fulfill what he promised he would do through Jesus. And that is this. You're an old man now, and he's going to stretch your arms out the way they commonly spoke of the cross. And you're going to die, Peter. This isn't the main point. We're still in the introduction. This is not the main point. But listen to me. Some of you fear death. You fear death. Let this word be helpful to you. God controls the day of your death. To the exact moment. In the exact method. In which you will die. God knows it. You will not accidentally die. That's true. You, can, you, you, you will not cheat death, as we like to say. You will not have a sudden demise in which nobody was, everybody was caught. It's, to us, it's a sudden shocking thing. But to God, it's planned before the world began. How you will die, when you will die, to the exact breath you will draw. And the exact number of hairs that are on your head. For some of us, that's a very fast-moving target. Yeah, some of you young guys don't know yet. Just wait. One day you'll get in the shower and more hair will be in the bottom when you get out than in the top. And you'll realize the day's come. God's counting fast at this point. He knows everything. He has intimate personal knowledge. He has planned it all. It's not open-ended. You're not going to accidentally die from some catastrophe one day. God will give you your last heartbeat, your last brainwave, your last breath, and then you will go into eternity. And he told Peter, through Jesus, before Jesus ascended back to heaven, the day's coming when you'll be an old man, you'll stretch out on the cross, you'll die. And Peter's telling the people in this church, that day's here, I got one shot to tell you the most important things I believe there are in the world, and I'm about to tell you. He laid a foundation for them in the beginning of the chapter, and he comes to verse 16, our text. I want to make three quick points, one application, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper. First of all, we see that our faith in the coming of Jesus Christ is not based on mythology. It's not based on fairy tales. It's not based on wisely formed fables. 
Our faith is not based on man's work. It's based on God and His Word. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, mythologies. Think about the hobbit. I like the hobbit, by the way. Hope to see it this week. Second edition, read the book. I commend to you the Lord of the Rings. The whole thing. You realize Tolkien spent 17 years of his life constructing a mythology about the English people. 17 years creating languages and a world and people groups. So he could write a book. It just blows my mind. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible's not a fairy tale. It's not mythology. It wasn't created, cleverly devised. Tolkien's is. This is not. What is it? Peter is not asking us to base eternity on a myth. Peter was an eyewitness to Christ's majesty. Look at verse 16, second part of the verse. The first part of the verse is written so we can understand this is not made up. This is not something that we came up with with our clever thought processes to enslave people and to control their behavior. That's what the atheists of our day say. That's not the truth. The Bible wasn't made for that. I sat at family uh, Christmas with a, with a guy, a cousin-in-law, and he told me, religion was created, I don't mean to offend you, but religion was created to control people's behaviors. And I looked at him and said, I don't mean to offend you. That's true of all other religions except Christianity. And I went right to this text I had been studying for weeks. He just didn't know. I said, First, Second Peter, verse 16, chapter 1. Our faith is not based on cleverly devised myths. What is it based on? Well, Peter says, I'm an eyewitness to what happened. Look what he said. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. This word, coming, this word coming is parousia. This word is used 18 times in the New Testament to refer to the second coming of Jesus. So our text is not about the first coming, it's about the second coming. The most important thing Peter wanted his church to know is Jesus is coming again. He's not just dead and gone. He's coming. Now, he said that. Now, Peter uses this same word in chapter 3. We've been studying chapter 3 in, in Bible study. Verse 4. Just so you know, that's what this word has to mean. Verse 4. Chapter 3. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? That word coming. Parousia. There it is again. Verse 12 in chapter 3. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Coming. It means, it's parousia. It means the second coming. So, verse 16 Peter says, I'm an eyewitness to the second coming. Wait a minute. Whoa. Peter is an eyewitness to the second coming? Yes. Absolutely. Follow this. Notice what he says in verse 16. It's the what of his coming? The majesty. 
I saw his majesty. When did Peter see his majesty? What event took place in Peter's life that would let him be able to say, I saw the full majesty of Jesus? Well, take your Bible. Hold your place here and take your Bible and turn back. I want you to look back into Mark chapter 9. He is an eyewitness to the second coming of Christ in this sense. He saw the full majesty of Jesus. Where did he see it? Chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took him, Peter, James, and John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured, transformed, changed before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him them Elijah and Moses, symbolic of the prophets and the law, symbolic of the old covenant, symbolic of God's promise having been fulfilled in Jesus. And Peter said, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This is a good point to say, if you don't know what to say, don't say. Because he violated the first commandment, and you shall have no other gods before me. Now let's make a tabernacle and worship. Who are we going to make a tabernacle to? We're going to make a tabernacle to Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Then there was a rebuke. The cloud which overshadowed them had a voice that came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This was the prefiguring of the second coming of Jesus. Peter was an eyewitness to what Jesus will look like when he comes again. Radiant. White. It matches John's description. Peter says, Our faith is based on the Word of God, the promises which have been fulfilled in Christ. Even the second coming has been, is, has been promised and it will be fulfilled. This is my beloved Son, in verse 8, 17, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Now you would think right there is the climax of faith and experience. You'd say, that's all Peter needed. That's why Peter was so bold. If I had that experience, then I would be as bold as Peter. I would be a martyr. I would go forth and tell the gospel at all costs. But that's not the conclusion that Peter comes to. Our faith is not built merely on experiences but it's built on, our faith is built on Christ and His certain, His sure Word. Now as we close, look at this. Verse 19. The NASB, I wish Aaron was here, gets it wrong. I say with all humility. The Greek instruction right here is very tricky. Very tricky. Verse 18 feels like a 
finished sentence. And so what the translators in the NASB do is put, but we have something more sure. There is no warrant for the word but. There is nothing in the original text that says put a conjunction but there. Okay? You say, what is the big deal? Because that disjoints the two statements. That makes this statement and then this statement separate from one another. And I don't think that's what the original indicates. What the original indicates is what the ESV does and what the King James does even better. Connect these two thoughts. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure. Our faith is not built on visions. It's not built on some revelation secret to me and to a few. But it's built on the Word of God. It's more sure. The prophetic Word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says, your faith is not built on experiential theology, but it is built on the revealed Word of God. People, in 2014, if you do nothing else, I don't care if you lose five pounds, gain five pounds. I don't care if you eat more sweets or eat less sweets. I don't care if you kiss your wife more than once a day or less than once a day. I don't care what you do other than Get in His Word. Because then all the other things take care of themselves. Then you will kiss your wife and be more loving. Then you will eat less and be temperate in all actions and words and you won't speak harshly to others. Why? Because the Word of God, the foundation of our faith, the beauty of the mind of Christ will be permeating through your soul through the power of the Holy Spirit and we have something even more sure than going on a mountain and seeing Jesus transfigured in our very presence. We have the Word of God. So I ask you again, Is that how you see God's Word? That it's more certain. It's more sure than any dream, vision, revelation that you might privately hold to. But rather, it is the Word of God given for the whole church of all time forevermore. Because see, your mind will go. And your experiences will be forgotten. But the Word of God will never perish. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the Word of God stands forever. When we reach eternity's shore and we stand in the presence of Christ forevermore, we will forevermore hear, preach, sing, think the Word of God. You're not going to be cut free from the shackle of the Bible when you leave this life. You will be immersed into the deep end of the pool when you leave this life and enter the next. All of eternity will be wrapped up with the Word of God. Yes, preaching will be going on constantly without end in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be the number one, the number one occupation of all people in the new heavens and the new earth. There won't be one preacher or ten preachers or a thousand preachers. There will be millions of preachers. Each one endeavoring to teach the other what is clearly revealed in the Word of God. And we won't have to have a book anymore. It will be in us. Perfectly. We'll have perfect recall and perfect knowledge of this Word. And we will grow in our knowledge of God forever. This Word is like a lamp standing, shining its light in a dark world. And it will do so until the morning star rises in your heart.
It will have its way. Christ will come and he will bring to pass the second coming just like he did the first. Our faith is built on the word. And what is the word of God? This final point must conclude by saying the word of God is inspired, perfect, which is to say it is without error from the mouth of God, expired from the mouth of God. And thirdly, it is to be proclaimed or exposited. We need to say that at least from this passage. Verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. There's some disagreement about this, but I think what he's saying here is that all of what we gather from the Word of God, all the things we know from the Word of God, all the things we teach from the Word of God have to come from the Word of God. It's, it's the text for proving expositional preaching. Why do we preach the way we do at Grace Fellowship? Because Peter says every message you bring must be from this Word. Not reading into it, but taking from it. Everything is made, not of our own interpretation, but of the interpretation of the Spirit so that we're able to expound on what's given to us in this Word. Verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's not, the Bible is not the writing of man. Primarily it's the writing of God, permeated through the person of the man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along, as they were moved along, as they were brought along, as they were inspired. As, the, as God breathed out His Word into them, they then began to write it down for all time and all people through the power of the Holy Spirit. What application do we gather from this text? Very simple. Take your hand. I've done it here many times. You take your hand and I want you to hold it and I want you to say them with me. We hear the Word of God. We read the Word of God. We memorize the Word of God. We meditate on the Word of God. We share it. We teach one another. These are the five ways that we take in the Word of God in 2014 and every year after if God graces us. Hearing it, reading it, memorizing it, meditating it on it, and sharing it with one another. It's not a private thing. Forevermore remove the hogwash of our culture about religion being a private affair. It is not a private affair. Religion is a very public thing. Christianity is a very public thing. And for you to really have the truth of God born out of your life, it must be shared. Finally, the weakest link is hearing, but it's very important. You need to commit in 2014 to be under the preaching of God's Word as often as possible. Here on Sunday mornings or special occasions, in your trucks, through your iPods and your iPads and your iPhones and your iWhatevers. Download it and listen to it. You have the greatest preachers in the world at your disposal 24 hours a day. Listen to the Word of God being preached. Read the Word of God. Read it or slash listen to it on audio. Some of you drive. Bruce drives a lot. And some of you say, how does Bruce know the Bible so well? Because he's committed to knowing the Bible. You know how he knows the Bible? Because of a lot of reasons. But one is, he works for UPS, he delivers packages all day, and he puts in earbuds and he listens to the Bible over and over and over and over and over again. He does does listen to some other things. Paul Feinbaum every now and then. 
But the majority of his 10-hour day is eaten up with the Bible. But maybe you don't have 10 hours of just riding around, driving, and, and, and doing handwork and not having to think about a lot of different things. But do you have 15 minutes? In 15 minutes, you can listen to the entire Bible in a year. In 15 minutes a day. Hear it, read it. Read it. There's thousands of plans out there. ESV has put out two new resources, whole Bibles divided up for daily reading. You don't even have to buy that. You can go online and print free charts. Every day charted for you what you should read. You can read through it in a year. You can read through it in two years. You can read through it in five years. I don't care. Read it. That's the second. The third is to, to memorize it. To memorize it. Commit it to memory. Put it in your mind. Fourth, meditate on it. Memory goes here. Meditation goes here. You say, well, I can't remember every line, punctuation, verse, and all that. Okay, then just try to do that and transfer it through meditation all day long. Let it cook in the crock pot of your heart and the Spirit of God will take it and work it out in you and through you so that you will never forget it. Your mind may go, but your heart will never go. And then share it. Talk to other people about it. We talk about football games, marriages, businesses, government. We talk about all this stuff. But what if we became a community in 2014 known for talking constantly about God and His Word? With other people in the community, people outside the community say, well, I don't ever get to share the gospel. I don't know how to do that. Just start talking about the Bible. Just next time you're sitting in the coffee shop, somebody comes up, work into the conversation what you've been meditating on in your heart. Now, that requires that you meditate, memorize, read, and hear it, right? Now, you got the other four done. Now, you're in the fifth, and you're sharing it. And you're just talking about what you love and what you're passionate about. All of a sudden, people listen to that. They, they don't care what you know. They care about what you care about. And all of a sudden, they're wrapped up, and they're asking questions, and they're thinking about it. And they leave, and they're encouraged and built up. The Word of God. The application, hear it, read it, memorize it, meditate on it, and share it. In 2014, let us be a people of the Word. Our faith is founded on it. May we never tire of hearing it. May we never tire of reading it. May we never tire of, of knowing Christ in it. What's your attitude? What's your attitude towards the Word of God? I've asked that question several times, so I'll answer it. For me. I know. I get paid to do this, right? I hear that one a lot. Well, yeah, preacher, you read the Bible a lot because they pay you to do that. The reality is, a lot of days I get to the end of the day and I have not valued God's Word. I've studied it parsed some words, looked at some context, thought about how I want to preach about. I've counseled some people with it. I've talked to them about how they need to apply it. But I have not valued it and treasured it and made it mine. I have not grasped Jesus from it. I have not seen Him in all of His majesty. I've not. So when I ask that question and you say, I feel so bad, Carl, because you were talking about being on the back windshield of the car. Mine doesn't stay there, okay? Because I use it a lot. 
but it can be in your hand and even open and being read and not being meditated into your heart and not being shared with others and not being treasured and valued. And I'm committing to you before God and you as my witnesses that in 2014 I will double the effort to know Him in His Word. And I want you to join me in it. I want you to come along for the journey. I want to see where God takes us. I believe if we do this, more than we could ever imagine will be done in and through us. In our lives, as Chuck and gave witness to earlier about just reflecting over his life, married with the Word, and through our lives. Missions and ministries that will be carried out, people that will be loved and cared for, souls that will be saved, missionaries that will be gone from here to another place because our faith is founded on His living and breathing Word that He inspired and gave to us. Let's pray for